everyone, this is Katherine Yeager. Welcome to Inspired Teams, where we're curious about human-centered organizations. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Wade Okanaka and Elise Latcher. In the second half of our conversation, we continue exploring how managers and coach influencers lead with practices that make traditional workplaces better. I call this a grassroots revolution. Wade and Elise redefine the role and practices of manager and their colleagues to create more human-centered teams. The hourly workplace holds a lot of variables that make it a really challenging environment for everyone involved. The New York Times wrote earlier this month that while the Great Resignation has focused on white-collar workers, the job turnover has been concentrated in hospitality and other low-wage sectors. So it is interesting to listen to Wade and Elise, who bring a humanness to this dynamic of the hourly workplace, and I think they open up so many new possibilities. And these demonstrate that we can work better together. Elise talks about creating a culture of caring, giving teams more autonomy, and experiments that actually become part of the culture. I love Elise's quote, with a strong culture, you can make a lot of changes. Elise and Wade share more of their hiring and onboarding practices, like rotating new colleagues through all the roles of the team, a simple yet powerful practice. Wade has some great stories to bring the point home. So here we are. We'll rejoin the conversation midstream. I would love to just take the conversation to a little different way and pull in Elise a little bit more how middle management or the, the workers doing the work, how they can embrace some of these self-managed principles and how that affects the bottom line, like the financial picture of it. And Elise, I know that you've also worked with your clients on bringing in, I'm going to say a little bit more enlightened practices. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the practices that you've encouraged in your clients, how that has affected the bottom line. Oh, Catherine, you you do have to remember that I am an accountant. And so one of the things that I do track, calculate, or uh, very much aware of is the cost involved in doing things the old way. And one of the things, um, Wade, when you talked about the fact that it takes longer to talk with people versus firing them on the spot, one of the things that I have calculated out, and it's not just me, many people have done it, the cost of replacing people that you've fired so easily, and especially in today's environment, where I think every business out there has got a sign out saying we're hiring, and it's just too hard to find people, firing people on the spot just doesn't make it's it's quicker right then, but it's long. It, it actually takes much longer. And when you think about the time and effort that you've put into hiring correctly and then training and onboarding somebody, the, the numbers absolutely show that with a little bit of counseling or positive reinforcement or changing the way we've always done things, does pay huge dividends in the long run. 
It's also interesting, Wade, when you were talking about the fact, and I don't know which MBA program started doing this, but we've talked about the fact that we it's all about revenue and it's we're driving revenue and these kinds of things. But even in my profession, veterinary medicine, we talk about the getting new clients and driving revenue. But the interesting thing is the cost of getting new members in your gym or new clients to a veterinary practice or new anybody into a business, it costs a lot more to get new than it does to retain the clients that you have. And yes, you can have the salesman out there getting you into the gym, but if those day-to-day people that are interacting with them are not doing a good job and providing true customer service, you're going to lose them. So it, from even any kind of a standpoint, you, you think about it, all of these smart upper managers should be looking at spreadsheets on the cost of acquiring a new member to the gym, including the huge commissions they're paying the salesman, versus the dollar an hour raise that it would take to give to an operations person that would retain these clients. And it's in my world, we talk so much about, again, getting new clients that we do talk about retaining and the, the clients that we have. But there are very few of us that actually do have as part of our annual numbers, looking at the retention rate of our clients. And it's also interesting that when some of us have talked about retaining clients, we don't even go about the numbers correctly in how to calculate retaining clients. So it's just not something that is embedded in people on the importance of keeping what we have as opposed to, oh, it's it's just more fun to go out and get new people than it is to have to put in that day-to-day customer service of taking care of clients. And if you look at Horst Schultz, the uh, one of the CEOs of the Ritz-Carlton, part of his whole um, foundation on keeping the Ritz where it was was that everybody is involved in customer service, everybody. And in the importance of keeping our hotels as profitable as they are and the reputation they have relies as much on the, the maintenance people and the front desk people as it does on the, the salesman. So in just in terms of paying attention to what's going on with our, our our businesses, rewarding and getting to know our staff members, our team members. It's again, time and time again, when we have surveyed team members, compensation is not number one on why they want to work for a company or why they want to be engaged in doing their work. Now, every time I say that, people get the wrong impression that I should be able to have all of my team members volunteering in our clinics. And that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when we've got happy 
satisfied, engaged team members, the practices wind up being more profitable and we share that profitability with our team members. And it's just, now we're not giving it all. The practices still have to be profitable, just like your gyms have to be profitable. And there's lots of demands on that money. But sharing with the team, for one thing, it also teaches them a little bit about how businesses work. And many of these things that we talk about and that Wade talked about that he does with his team members, I'm going to suspect that if you talked with the family members of these people who worked with Wade, there was some spillover into their home life and their handling their children um, if they happen to be parents, because they've learned that sending kids to their room or beating their backsides or whatever does not always work in terms of raising responsible children. We, it, it is so interesting to me that we don't separate our business lives from our personal lives. You can't do that. You are one human being who happens to spend a lot of time at work and a lot of time at home, but you're still that person. And incorporating and sharing with what we've learned at work, taking it over to our home life, it's just interesting to me the benefits that these kinds of human practices have on the world in general. And it's my And that goes vice versa too. Like, you know, at home, you know, I may not tolerate when people speak to me in a certain way or how decisions are made, but at work, I will flip that and I'll like, sure. And I think a lot of times with women, women at home, often mothers and wives are the main energy force of what goes on in the home life. And yet do these same women go to work and be like, oh, I'll do that and capitulates. Oh, that's a whole nother <laughs> interview there, Catherine, on where you're going with it. We're going to cure. Um, I'm hoping that Wade had not just male members on his team, but female members on his team also, and that they benefited from Wade's great um, uh training and, and I hate to use the word managing, facilitating or leading his team that I'm sure there was spillover in many directions and anybody. My team was about a, I think 80% female. So okay, I was surrounded by a lot of very strong women. Oh, good. I'm very thankful for that. I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I learned that I'm a very, uh, if you ever, look at that that color chart it's kind of like how they talk describe teal organizations but um you know you have your red yellow personalities and your green and blue personalities i'm kind of like a blue green personality i'm very more passive and i coincidentally i hired the opposite i hired a lot of red and yellow personalities so i had a i had a lot of people that were very task oriented that were very um driven that were very outgoing personalities because that was the opposite of me so I was very good at the planning and being calm in situations and being very rational. And they would be the ones that would be very emotional and come at me and want to vent and do all these things. And it was it was a good dynamic because they knew they could come to me, they could vent to me, I would listen, and I would give them a very rational perspective back 
that sometimes they needed. And mm-hmm. so it, it was a very good dynamic. And when I needed stuff done, they would just go out and do it. You know, they would, they were, um, so it, it was good. I, I was very fortunate. I, I had a, a lot of very strong, independent people on my team, not just female, male and female. I, I, I was very fortunate that they, they, I worked with so many good people. Mm, well, Wade, great. in all reality, you pit, you you really hit that nail on the head because red and yellow people don't need more red and yellow people yeah. telling them what to do. <laughs> they need a green and blue person to guide them, guide them where they needed to go. So, Elise, you were talking about um, the need not only to manage the cost of bringing in customers and clients, but also maintaining them. Um, and it comes to mind all of the loyalty programs and the work that so many companies are doing. I know on a, on a marketing perspective, we think of new, new customers and existing customers to keep the loyalty because the cost of acquisition is so high for, for new ones. But also the goals and KPIs, OKRs that are there um, that a broader organization will set and how the activities are driven to meet those goals. So what are the specific goals, KPIs, whatever, you know, you, you, how you choose to work with them? How are those set in your companies so that there is a broader awareness of and, and a, a, a broad awareness and action towards keeping current customers and clients? Oh, well, you know, the typical KPIs for a business is revenue, 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 and costs. And in our clinics, we absolutely once a year track retention rate of clients. But the other thing that we track is retention rate of team members. And uh, if we're tracking the turnover and we've got a revolving door going on with our team, so help me God, we're in there very quickly figuring out what's going on. And sometimes it's that we hired right wrong and uh, the practice owner has let it slide that he's keeping a tick toxic employee around, and that gets stopped relatively quickly. Um, We also do do clients, staff member surveys. We do client surveys, but equally important, we do staff surveys every couple of uh, months just to see anonymously how clients, team members are feeling about their jobs. But I will tell you, more important than any of that is the regular check-ins that our leadership team is doing with the team. And what those, when we first started doing check-ins, everybody complained that they can't get their annual reviews done. How in the hell do they, we expect them to be talking with their team members every 90 days. And when we finally nudge them strong enough to understand that this is not negotiable, you're just going to do it. The first couple of check-ins that they do run much longer than the 15 or 20 minutes that a good check-in takes. However, like with everything else, once you practice it and do it, you get better at it. 
And they found that they start to uncover things way earlier in the process. So instead of letting things build, sweeping under the rug, and ultimately big blowups occurring, that things are said that nobody wants to admit to saying, they find that they come back to me and say, why didn't you make me do this earlier? <laughs> oh, wow. Because I do have a bullwhip, but I try not to use it very often. So mm. you're going to have to discover it on your own mm. that, you know, one of the things I do very well is I nag people and they do come to the realization that every once in a while, it's just easier to make me happy and do what I'm asking you to do rather than just hearing me nag you every time we're talking. Um, but it sounds I, like one of the things that are uncovered there in the check-ins is what Wade talked about earlier is people will kind of self-reveal things or it's like they learn things on their own. And with that, it is that thing. I'm not telling you what to do. You're realizing it. It's more internal motivation and things actually take a little longer maybe to get that to that point. But the, the effect of it is much more um, long lasting and actually what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, real, genuine. Well, it's also interesting. You know that those of you who use Facebook, one of the KPIs, if you want to use that term, that you all look at is how many friends you have. Mm. However, with those of us in the social science arena, and it's hard to be a totally recovered social worker, there's still parts of that in me that surface all the time. Um, having a friend on Facebook is not quite like having somebody who really wants to get to know you and care about you and these kinds of things, especially with a lot of the younger team members that we have today. But it's not just the young team, team members. It's people in general. We don't um, walk around our name for many of us asking you, what's the name of the person that lives next door to you? They can't come up with their name. And even if they can come up with their first name, knowing anything about them is extremely hard. If you go and ask many supervisors or managers today, tell me something about your team member. You know, what mm -hmm. is their spouse's name? How many children do they have? What do they like to do on the weekends? That kind of thing. They can't tell you that. So you've got people coming to work and spending generally somewhere around eight hours a day in an environment that they're really a nobody. And it doesn't work in terms of having an engaged employee in our practice, or in our mind world. And it's not just us. Um, you know, there is that saying that says nobody knows how much you care until they know. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And we've said that for years in our veterinary world, but how many practice owners really know their team? you could probably count on one hand.
And it's just when they know that they're coming to work, the fitness where Wade cares about them, you're going to see that culture develop that he had at his clinics or his, his fitness centers. And I will tell you, I keep encouraging Wade to go out there and start a business in teaching businesses how to develop that culture. Because God, we know that we need that right. a lot today. The culture of caring. Mm-hmm. Both of you have brought up uh, the notion of experiments and running a little experiments and trials. And again, thinking about an individual who's in more of a command and control or pyramid type of hierarchy, a title hierarchy, what are other experiments that you've run or that you've, that you've heard of that may be helpful in creating a stronger culture of caring and more uh, autonomy within a team? Oh, Elise, <laughs> uh, you want to go, Elise? Sure. I I think we have so ingrained ourselves in org charts and parenting our children at work into being good children that starting anywhere, well, first of all, you've got to get the buy-in of at least somebody on the management team, if you can't get the CEO and upper, upper management people to buy into it. Equally important, however, if you've got your team developing into that team that Wade had at his fitness center, if you're batting your head against the wall every day with upper echelon who thinks that you're what you're doing is crazy, it's time to go off and either find another business where you can be appreciated or you start your own business in training people how to start to do some of these kinds of activities. In my practices, the veterinary practices, when to start with, in the perfect world, getting the owners to buy into the fact that it is very tiring to be the parent of your team and making all decisions that need to be made in the clinic and doing, having to have the answer for everything that is all of the questions that your team has. When I start to actually have them keep timesheets, and I know that I come from an accounting background and in an accounting world, you keep timesheets of what you're doing all day long. So when I have them track how much time they lose on being interrupted from what they're trying to do to answer questions Mm. that are so basic and nobody's going to die if a wrong decision is made. Obviously in the surgery suite or in the exam room, when we're talking about delivering healthcare information, that's where the doctors reign. It's their way or the highway in, in this the surgery suite on the way animals are cut up and put back together again. But when it comes to the how to answer the phone, what you want to get across is you want to have whoever called the clinic knows the the clinic that they called and whom they're talking to so that that's the critical information. 
in the old school, we used to have people who went into clinics and wrote scripts for the receptionist on how to answer the phone. And they would get rated on whether or not they were answering the phone following the script. And Mm -hmm. that simply doesn't make any sense in this day and age. We don't have any scripts in any of our clinics. We do say, this is the name of the clinic. Make sure you know what it is and make sure you're speaking slowly enough that when I'm calling the clinic, I can know what clinic called. And as long as we've got that part of it done, um, you know, it's your job to make sure that you answer the questions that the client has. Over and above that, you figured, you know, do it on your own. And we survey clients periodically just to make sure that their needs are being met. And they are when we have adults working in our clinics rather than good four-year-olds. What are some other experiments that you encourage your clients to run to help bring autonomy throughout all levels of the team? We have stand-up meetings. We started slowly with those, but we now, they so many of these things that we've experimented with, for the most part, they become part of the culture of the team. One of the things that happens in veterinary clinics And there's probably the equivalent that happens in most, well, I know there is. Um, In veterinary clinics, the front office fights with the back office (laughs) constantly. And that's no different than the sales team um, fighting with the production team or any of that kind of stuff. So we have stand-up meetings and there is always at least a representative of each of the departments or um, areas in the hospitals that meet on a regular basis It is absolutely not a bitch session. It is sharing information and giving them the information that they need to know. We also, um, with new hires, not necessarily the first week, but after they've been in the clinic for a couple of weeks and know where their coffee cup is and all of that kind of stuff, we actually rotate them through the departments for an hour or so so that they can see what goes on in these departments, that it's not the receptionists are not just sitting there all day long on Facebook. They've got phones ringing and clients standing there wanting to be checked out and dogs sniffing cats and all of that kind of stuff that can cause trouble. And the receptionists rotating through the back office so that they realize that the technicians are not just playing with puppies and kittens all day long. It's just always interesting and it's, it's not anything new. We've all said, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. We talk about all of these kinds of things, but we never actually really do, do it. them. And, and until so, you actually do it, you don't really know. It's very different to experience it than just hear somebody talking about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Elise, you've also talked about scheduling. How do you suggest the vet offices do their scheduling? Oh, in my world, I think scheduling is a lot harder than brain surgery. You've got a team of 12 to 20 people and somehow or another, one person who drew the short straw has to put together a schedule to make sure that when the clinic opens in the morning and closes at night, there are people on board covering all the work that needs to be done. 
in the old where world of doing scheduling, you had this person who drew the short straw who has to take 20 people and put them in the appropriate slots. That is, I mean, it's time consuming to do that. But where the real time comes in is that you have five of your people that you have slotted to work a time that conflicts with a doctor's appointment or a child's parent-teacher's meeting or some other critical thing that needs that they need to be doing. Or more importantly, for any of you who try to make appointments with your human doctors, you don't just get to call up today and say, I want an appointment tomorrow. Especially now, even with coming off of the pandemic, you call today and you hope you can get an appointment six weeks from now. Or right now, I'm dealing with my car trying to get it into a body shop. It was six weeks from the time my car was hit before I could get it to a body shop that was a good 50-minute drive from my house. Yes. If I've got this appointment made and the person doing the scheduling in the vet's office doesn't know that I've got an appointment six weeks from now, we have got a problem and it is going to take longer for me to find somebody that can switch with me than it is if when we were making the schedule, we actually said to the team members, these are the parameters on what you can do. You can't have a kennel person who's a technician for a doctor. These are the people that have the qualities to be able to work in these slots or the training to be able to work in these slots. Now you guys sit down and make your schedule. And it's interesting because they would generally get it done in a little over an hour's time. And there was very little after planning review that happened where everybody was trying to change the, now inevitably there may be sometimes when something comes up that a schedule, a person's schedule needs to be changed. But because we have responsible and accountable adults working here, they figure it out much quicker than coming to me and saying, I can't work that day. So it's much like what Wade says, when you have responsible adults working for you, you trust what they're going to do and you have a culture where they get to function like responsible and accountable adults. They figure it out much faster and much better than us know-it-all managers trying to live other people's lives. But you're also entrusting them. Absolutely. I mean, you, as you said, you said they're responsible adults, but also in how your interactions are, but also your interactions with them demonstrate that you trust them, right? Sounds snap my way, fingers. <laughs> sounds like you've really did that in spades. Well, you can't snap your fingers and turn three-year-olds into 21-year-olds. You have to build a culture and an environment and a training program and an onboarding program and all of that kind of stuff to make sure that you've got people that are hired and onboarded correctly into your your business. And I will your fitness gym or veterinary practice or whatever. And we make it, it, does take longer in our hiring process 
Because like Wade said, we're hiring for attitude and training for skills. Now, if we're hiring a veterinarian, he does need to know the basics of being a veterinarian. There's no two ways about that. However, equally important to what his or her skills are is what her attitude is and or his attitude. And we are teams. And so you can't come in there and say, um, that's not my job, or this is all about me, or, you know, I'm the quarterback of the team and the rest of you are just little peons. That simply doesn't work. We use user manuals. We use user manuals, which basically is filling out a form so people know how to interact with you. And this sounds silly, but basic things like don't come to me at six in the seven in the morning with a question that could wait until after we've got the the drop-offs and the new patients and all of that stuff taken care of. Just don't do it because I'm my head is not on whether or not we're going to change coffee makers or not. Um, but certain helping people understand how to interact with other people. That's called a user's manual. We do some basic personality testing and we use a a personality tool called the five voices and it's a book and it's written in English. And you can, part of the problem I have with some of these personality tests or communication tests, I don't know what a DI or a DS is, for example, or an EFTH. I don't know what all that means. I know in the five voices that when you're talking about a pioneer or a nurturer or a connector, I understand what those mean. And so in our clinics, people have post, it is posted on the intranet what our basic personality styles are. And when new people come into the clinic, they go through the five voices test. It's posted onto the intranet again, but equally important, they can see learn more about the other team members so they can interact a lot better with it because again, it's written, it's talked about in English. So it's not trying to remember what some of these phrases are that are so particular into some of these other tools. People are just able to engage with each other on a much more productive basis. But in my experience, uh, you'll go in and I, in organizations that I've been, we've taken these tests and I learned I'm, you know, whatever I am and maybe others share, maybe they don't, but then it's forgotten. It's not forgotten in our clinics. Oh, good for you. It's part of the lexicon, first of all, and people talk about it and they, it is brought up and used Uh, when you're hired. You know, like I said, we don't hire, when we're looking for a practice manager, for example, tend to look more for connectors who can um, try. Their goal is very different than a technician whose goal is really to nurture the clients and be that part of the basis in interacting with the client when the client is upset over you know what's going on with their their pet the doctor and i'm not saying that the doctors aren't nurturers but their job is just a little different mm-hmm. than 
the nurturers who do, in fact, interact on a different basis than um, than the doctors. When right. we've got practice owners, they tend to be a little, and again, it's not good or bad. It's just differences on right. where they are. And the focus of the practice owner, while he or she still has to be a doctor and, you know, all these other kinds of things, they also have the overall responsibility for the business, which is responsible for the household income of the 20 people that are working there and Mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things. So there are differences in personalities. All personalities are good, but there are differences. And knowing that is just helpful. Right. Wade, did you do any inventories or surveys so that individuals could find out more about themselves and other team members and their personality types? Um, you know, we, we didn't have that. I think, I think for us, I did try to experiment and I embraced a little bit of Ricardo, what Ricardo had said in one of his talks, which was um, sociologically, if you want stability, you have to have all different types of personalities. So I think in his talk, he said, like, you know, if you have 10% that are overachievers, you want that. You want maybe, like, if 10% are lazy, you want that. And 5% are, like, you know, thieves, you want that. Like, it sounds ridiculous, but he was saying from a stability standpoint, you know, everybody wants to hire. They, they say hiring right, or they say you want to hire the best people. If all you have are the best people, you're not going to keep them. People are going to leave at some point. So you're never going to have that stability. And so I I kind of ran with it and I, I experimented a little bit, but um, I put it to my team. I, I'd let them know, and I've, I've said this to other managers too. I could argue the point that if you had to hire 10 people for your team, because the nature of our business was a little different. We're considered entry level. You know, it's a minimum wage job. Um, so I I told them I could argue the point that if you needed to hire 10 people, you could do 100 interviews and pick 10 people. Or you could hire the first 10 that you get. You probably are going to get the same result or close to it um, because you don't know. We've Over the years, you know, we've I've done thousands and thousands of interviews and you could have someone with this great resume. And they could interview amazingly and they could be horrible workers when you put them, you know, put them on your team. Um, you, I've had some that were late for an interview, didn't dress well, um, didn't dress quote unquote the way you're supposed to, uh, maybe didn't give the best answers because sometimes they're nervous. Uh, but, you know, we give them a shot and they're amazing. They turn into some of our best workers and you, you just don't know. You, you don't. And so I, I was always... I was never afraid to hire people with no experience. You know, um, I, I, I believe so much in our culture that we could train these people, even a little bit. Like I said, I, I had no fear of having this person for two weeks or having this person for a month. And when you don't have that fear, you know, you, you, you tend to take a lot of chances. And, and I did that. You know, I, when you have a strong culture, you can take a lot of chances because it, it's just you got to have that belief. You know? It does require a lot of faith, but um, 
I've, yeah, I've it's made really some powerful. Mistakes. I've had some failures, you know, but right. I, I think everybody gets that. I think everybody has those. I, I'm sure Lisa's had those too. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of managers like, oh yeah, this person is supposed to be great. I saw that this resume, they have this degree. I'm like, they're like the worst worker we've ever had. You know, just, you don't know. You just right. don't. So it's kind of so interesting, interesting. Wade, to have people with a, a long resume on an entry level position. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had I've had someone actually come in a suit for it. And you know, I, I remember I, I was doing this interview. Um, it was this younger female that had just moved from the mainland. And she was applying for my juice bar. And I remember that. Um, when she came for her interview, she was dressed in really short, short denim shorts, sandals, a little halter top. Nothing like how you're taught to dress for an interview, <laughs> right? right? Like you are Hawaii, nothing, right? And and yeah, oh, um, even for Hawaii, <laughs> yeah. So she came for an interview, and I was I was interviewing this person. I I remember I could I I was observing some of my team members and whatnot. And they were all giving her looks because they couldn't, they couldn't believe how she was dressed. And um, so I did this interview and then, uh, and then after she left, I had my other leads and stuff. Who was that? I was like, Oh, you know, she was applying for, for a juice bar. We well, didn't hire her. Right. Did you see the way she was dressed? I go, actually, I did hire her, you know? And they're like, why did you see how she was dressed? I'm like, well, do you understand? Like she worked in restaurants before she was a waitress. And when you talk to her, her personality, like she was such a happy, bubbly person that I told her, I need you on my team because I need this attitude. Like I need that, that energy. And they were wow. like, I can't believe you hired her. You know, and I had so much pushback from, from everybody that saw her because they were making that assumption. And it's so funny. Like they, my leads gave her a hard time. They were, they didn't really want to work with her because they had this notion. And so it took a week or so. And then they realized, oh my God, wait, this person, I love her personality. She became one of our best juice bar workers because of that energy. She was so popular. And, you know, I was like, I gotta tell you, I told you so. I just, I told you so. You know, I, I just, didn't know how you had the dress code talk with her though, Wade. Yeah. So one of my, one of my <laughs> leads who had been with me for a long time, uh, I, I, it's always a touchy subject, but I had another female lead that kind of <laughs> went up to her and let her know, Hey, you know, normally our dress code is, is this, you know, it's athletic shorts. Um, you, you are doing a lot of bending and stretching and stuff. So just for, to be appropriate, you probably want, don't want anything too short. And that's how she kind of phrased it too. It, it, it was better coming off from a female lead than probably me. So that's she why I, ha have. I had that person have to talk with her, but kudos and, and it was fine. And she, she totally understood it. She wasn't offended and, and we never had a problem. Wow. Total <laughs> kudos. Wow. Well, I'm looking at the time and of course we've talked on and on cause it's always so interesting. I'm just curious if there's anything else that you want to, that you feel compelled to add or what are you, what are you thinking and feeling right now? Well, at least I did, um, and Catherine, I did want to throw into, a, at least, you know, when you're talking about the whole, like, uh, working front and back, and uh, mm -hmm. we did the same thing, you know, it's, it's the same thing as Simcoe's uh, Lost in Space program. Our new hires, what I had changed in, the, in their orientation was 
they spent 30 minutes to an hour. If they were hired for the front desk, they spent 30 minutes in our juice bar, an hour in our juice bar. They spent an hour in our kids area. They spent an hour with my janitorial team. Uh, there was, my pet peeve was hearing that's not my job. That was one of the worst things for me to hear. And so when we hired people, we were very clear that we were one team, even though there was a front desk area, there was a juice bar area and a kids area and a janitorial area. It, it was still the operations team. You know, we were one team. So um, if there were people that maybe were hired for the front desk that they weren't comfortable with kids, I didn't expect them to work in our kids area, but I had them spend time there because just like what you said, Elise, I wanted them to understand what our kids area was going through. If let's say they were trying to call the kids area to get some information and no one was answering the phone and they work there and they can see, okay, there's 50 kids in screaming kids. We only got five attendants. Like, you know, they can't, they're trying to watch all these kids. They're, they're going to be busy. Like that's what happens, you know? And so, Empathy. Um, we, I wanted them to have a better understanding, but at the same time, what it did was these new hires that let's say, I remember I hired a uh, janitorial staff member and I had them work in the kids club a little bit, work in the juice bar. And pretty soon you find out, in that short time, oh my God, their interaction with the kids is amazing. So we ended up having them work more hours in our kids area because that was a better fit for them and they enjoyed it more. So they performed better, um, but we had hired them for janitorial. So they still did some janitorial work on the side and had no complaints with it. And um, so about 75 so, Wait, is that rotation practice? Is that, was that a common thing in no, the um, overall organization? No, always hired for specific hmm. departments. So that's another rule that you broke, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I didn't. I never looked at it as a rule I broke. I just looked at it as the way it should be. I mean, that's being more human about it. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, seventy-five to eighty percent of my team all worked in other departments, so I never had issues with understaffing because there was always someone to help out whenever someone needed help. So someone would call out. I've always had someone in somewhere another department that would just move over. And there would be no complaints. There'd be no problems. Right. So interesting. Thank you both so much for spending this time with me and and sharing your stories and your insights. I really appreciate it. Thank you. See you Wednesday night. Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you to Wade Okanaka and Elise Latcher for a fun conversation and sharing their stories and beliefs. The show notes have links where to find Wade and Elise and the New York Times article. What inspired you from this conversation? Do you see something differently, something that could be possible? Do you have one idea, even a small one, that you can turn into a little experiment? Is there someone you can share this episode with who can benefit from an invitation to an experiment? Thanks for listening. I'd appreciate hearing your feedback and any takeaways. Find out more at inspiredteens.org. Thank you.